you could if you're still recording you can you can add on a bit and I can just pretend that I'm really quiet. Uh, we have some rather choice feedback. This is what happens when you go away for three weeks or four weeks between episodes or however long it's been. That's right. Although nobody would suspect that if you hadn't have said it just there. Nobody would have suspected that we were... Or, or if we hadn't spent half of the last episode talking about it. Yeah, I guess we kind of gave it away there, didn't we? we? Yeah, the cat's out of the bag where that's concerned, I think. Yes. So um, I think I'll, uh, I will uh, lead off, if you don't mind, with uh, a very nice email that we received from Tyler Weingarner. Uh, who is um, one of our avid listeners. Friend of the show. Yes, friend of the show. And he um, uh, mentioned that he it's the the only podcast that he's actually gone back and listened to the previous shows to, to, to make sure that he's completely up to date. Now, I have to question whether he does that because there are actually only six previous, well, five previous shows at the time that he wrote the email. Yes, I am very honored that he has made the effort I suspect that effort will become increasingly difficult and, <laughs> and increasingly rare as time goes on. But thank you very much, Tyler, for listening back. Tyler's a, a very good friend of mine, and uh, we share a, an interest in all things uh, technical. And um, Tyler mentioned that uh, when he's in the workshop doing what he does for the maker community, he um, uh, he enjoys putting us on. And I urge any anyone else out there in the maker community who's listening, please get in touch and let us know the kinds of things that you'd you're interested to hear on the show. Tyler actually uh, mentioned that whilst not being a big watch fan himself, he is uh, being a, a, a man of mechanics. He does love the concept and the idea of the watch mechanism. And he actually linked to a, um, a channel on YouTube called ClickSpring, where a, an Australian machinist actually goes through and creates an entire watch, an entire clock, mechanical clock mechanism uh, from scratch over the course of, I guess, about, what is it, 10 to 15 episodes? Yeah, I think it might be even more than that. It was, the whole thing was a huge amount of time that he put into it. Obviously, each episode is 10 or so minutes, but you can imagine the number of hours that goes into each episode. Yeah. I think the total project was about a 1,000 hours of his time. But actually, the if you, uh, Tyler mentioned that the, the video that he linked to us is the final in this series where... Uh, the click spring, click spring guy actually finally completes all of the parts for his clock mechanism and then assembles them. And Tyler mentioned that we may want to skip past the milling parts because they tend to be a bit boring if you're not into that kind of thing. But actually, I think fans of uh, Station 13, you probably will enjoy this because uh, the commentary is excellent and uh, like watching a professional do clay pottery, like on a rotating, what do you call it, like a rotating pottery wheel. It's sort of strangely soothing to watch... Uh, this man sort of cut through met the sort of metal on a mill, cutting through it like like a hot knife through butter. Yeah, it's sort of stra- strangely therapeutic. Yeah, I I really enjoyed watching it. I watched the uh, the whole of the video that he linked, which was the last one in the series, and then in the related videos, they had another sort of bonus video, which was a twelve minute splice up of the entire series into one 12 minute video and so that one had no vocal commentary it was just music i didn't see that one yeah no it's a a good i mean the the actual videos in the series look great because they're they're nicely explained he goes through you know what he's doing and why he's doing it and he has that that presenter australian accent i'm not (laughs) i know what what that sort of um received pronunciation in english is like bbc english the the presenter english but this this sounds to me at least like the australian equivalent because i've heard that exact accent before and it's always 
sort of very well-spoken, nice kind of presenter, kind of on TV kind of people. I don't know if I've met someone who talks like that, like to me in real life. No. But it's just really nice and easy to listen to. Yeah, yeah, no, no, you haven't met anybody like that, have you? No, who, who talks in a very nice Australian accent? No. Alex, your your accent is beautiful, but it is not the same as that accent. It is a different accent. It's uh, it's kind of it sounds to me like the sort of um, Sydney or Melbourne Eastern Seaboard newscaster accents in Australia. That's what I mean. Like when I'm saying presenter, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. Like the newscaster or or like the host of a children's TV show. <laughs> we yeah. say, come on, let's explain how we're going to do this, and like everything's kind of very crisp but also imbued with this sense of fun which is like <laughs> which is not nothing like the way i talk is it which is <laughs> no no yours is sloppy and dull that's, <laughs> that's right um although uh, there is another famous a very famous podcast uh with a fellow adelaide presenter on it who is i've even forgotten his name his name is you're thinking of hello internet with brady harren right? there we go that's right. Yes, he's he's he also hails from Adelaide, although he lives in uh, in England now. So, anyway, um, thank you, Tyler, for the email. And uh, please, please, if you uh, have other friends in the maker community who uh, who you think might be interested in our show, please uh, give us a uh, give us a recommendation. We are looking to expand our listener base. We always love hearing from um, from listeners who are enjoying the show. That's true, and even not just the maker community. Although I think you'll be hard pressed to beat. Tyler, who is who's listening to the show while making awesome things with cool machines. But anybody who's listening while they're doing something interesting, whether it's their job or some thing that they're doing sort of on the side, a hobby project, or if they listen while they're cycling to some interesting place or, or anything really, would be interested to hear what you're doing while you're listening. Because I think that's always a sort of, everyone has their own you know, podcasts are something you often do while you're doing something else. Mm. And that something else can often be quite interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious to hear about that because I've never myself been one for uh, this kind of talkback podcast, which is a funny thing to say as somebody who's actually doing one right now. It could be because my job is making music and sound. Right. You are disadvantaged in that respect. Yeah, it's kind of impossible to do anything else except to listen to my own horrible sound and music while I'm, while I'm working. So I'm very curious about uh, what the, the kinds of things that people actually do. Because I, I don't know about you, Danny, but if I'm working and trying to concentrate on something, I can't even have voices in the music that I'm listening to. Right. Um, if like if I'm working on something other than music production, like say I'm I'm writing emails or I'm uh, right. you know doing a spreadsheet for for finances or something like that, like calculating tax or whatever. If I have to concentrate, any kind of music that has vocals in it, I just my my ears just get pulled away and I start listening to the right. music. I think we talked about this once before because I was asking you for hip hop recommendations, and you were saying that while while you were into London grime and all that, you couldn't listen to it while you were working on anything because it would just yeah. put you off right right so that's why like the idea of listening to talk back uh such as station 13 and hello internet and many 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 others it, to me it, it seems a mystery like where when would you actually be able to do that i suppose driving or riding on public transport yeah those are quite common i i mostly listen on my commute i obviously i'm programming and programming is it involves words it's not the same as language, it's not the same as speaking English, but it's still, you're manipulating words and grammar. 
of sort of a different kind. Right. And so it is quite difficult. I think it is quite difficult to concentrate when you've got talking in the background. Mm. So I, I actually rarely listen to podcasts while I'm actively programming. Mm. The exception is when I'm doing something really easy. Because there are certain, sometimes there are jobs you have to do that involve a lot of typing, but not a lot of thought. Mm. Like, you know, you're, you're essentially following patterns. It's a bit like doing a Rubik's Cube. When you know the patterns really well, and especially if you're using a powerful text editor like Vim or Emacs, you, you kind of just get into the flow of these are the transformations I want to make. And I'm not even really thinking about the content all that much. I'm just kind of blindly going through the process of making all these changes in one big lump. Mm. And when I'm doing that kind of work, it's really boring work. So sometimes I might listen to podcasts while I'm doing that. Mm. But as soon as I have to actually think about anything, I do find it very difficult to do at the same time as listening to podcasts. Yeah, I, I might have a problem because uh, when I'm playing bass, uh, I'm a bass player of maybe more than 20, 25 plus years or whatever. There's your problem. Yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I, I can't even talk when I'm playing bass and let alone sing. I can't even talk. So my, my mind needs to either talk, in which case my fingers just go sloppy and then and the bass line becomes mud, or or I play, in which case when I talk, it just sort of, it's like the mouth is moving, the tongue is flapping, the, the voice box is operating, but nothing else is connecting. So yeah. it just all, which is really kind of embarrassing because I can be out in the middle of jamming with with a band, somebody can shout out a question to me and I just can't answer it. <laughs> yeah that is I'm, I'm always impressed by drummers who can sing while they're drumming it's a rare talent i think that um the more micro the movement that you're making the harder it is so for example bass playing is very micro movement because you're moving fingers you're moving basically you're moving your digits and uh drumming or playing guitar especially if you're playing like folk guitar there uh it's much more you know you grab a chord and you you strum, which is a sort of a more of a macro movement. Uh, same with drumming, you know. You obviously you have the micro movements with your fingers and your wrists right. uh, on to control the sticks, but basically it, overall it is essentially macro movements. So it may be a little mm. bit less difficult. Though. I'm not sure. I th I think drumming is hard. I because drumming is so rhythmic, and the rhythm is often different to the rhythm of the vocals, and I think that's that's really hard to keep up. Mm. I mean, I'm only basing this on my own myself. I can talk while I can play. I can talk while I play drums, but that could be because I play. Oh, can you? Oh. Yeah, I play drums really badly, so it could be because <laughs> that <laughs> you can't the, tell the difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Prioritizing talking while I'm playing drums, you just can't tell that I'm actually getting all sloppy on the drums. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, what other feedback do we have? Oh well, we had a couple of we had a couple of things. Firstly, uh, very briefly, we were talking last episode about the. Uh, communication difference, the speed of light, and the how long it would take if you were waving from the moon, how long it would take you to see that from here. And the answer, as researched by another friend of the show, Jetta, he tweeted us at Station 13 FM with the answer 1.3 seconds, apparently, which he got off the Wikipedias. That's surprisingly short. I was expecting it to be shorter, oh, actually. Okay. We're interesting. We've come in from different angles. The speed of light is very fast, indeed. And I thought that the moon 
on you know on the scale of the universe the moon is outrageously close i had thought it would be in the milliseconds mm. range but you thought it would be longer did you yeah i thought that uh i thought it would be a, a bit maybe sort of a few minutes i thought but that could be my peanut brain trying to process the the scale of everything and obviously when you go uh astronomical scales become very very surreal right so yeah yeah i thought it would be longer but that's interesting 1.3 seconds eh yeah one one point three seconds so you could i mean you could just about facetime from the moon <laughs> and it, it would be doable the, the latency is about the same as when i used to call my granny in zimbabwe 20 odd years ago <laughs> i was just going to say it's like a, ni- a 90s international phone call about 1.3 seconds right just on a, on a slight tangent there i was uh thinking the other day that the reason that we have seasons summer and winter mm. is because the earth rotates on a tilt right right which means that at some part of the year the earth is actually slightly closer to the sun the point on the earth that you stand right is well the earth itself is slightly closer to the sun at some parts of the year and also the earth is on a tilt there's two things right there's the orbit around the sun which i think is not a perfect circle with with the sun perfectly in the middle although i'm not totally sure the details of that right but there's also the fact that the earth is tilted relative to the sun right right to the point that you are on the earth makes a difference as well right and then i was thinking that you know when you think about as as animals ourselves as human uh, as as living animals on this planet or living organisms i should say Mm. from our point of view the difference between summer and the difference between winter when you think oh it's really cold or it's really really hot is created by this minuscule tilt right which makes you think then that if the earth was on on the astronomical scale if you just sort of shifted the earth a little bit all of a sudden it would be, you know, just scorching. <laughs> There'll be nothing living on it. It'd be just a sort of a, right. you know, a, a, pl- a planet of flames. Or it would be a, a planet of, of ice. And it's just sort of, you know, I was thinking the other day, you know, the whole idea of the Goldilocks zone and, and the fact that the Earth right. is, the position of the Earth is is so perfect and so, such a co- coincidence and suited for uh, the development of, of um, biological life forms such as ourselves just even just the slightest change on the astronomical scale would render all of this entirely impossible. That's that's pretty incredible. Right. There's every every little thing is right, which seems like an, an amazing coincidence that you we're the exact right size, we're the exact right distance from the sun. We have not too much of a skew to our orbit, so we don't spend sort of half the year miles away and half the year ridiculously close. And uh, and and the chemical makeup is also well suited. And all that seems like an amazing coincidence, but there are a lot of planets, <laughs> right? Yeah. And obviously, this is the one we're on. <laughs> right, right. The other ones that don't match all those parameters, it's not really a coincidence that that's not the one we're looking at, because that, be, precisely because they don't meet those parameters, there's no life on them. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, also like we were saying last week or the week before, or whenever it was, uh, last episode, whenever it was, saying about uh, looking at the stars at the, in the night skies, looking into the past. Just the, yeah, astronomy is cool, and it, it boggles boggles the mind, truly. Yeah, it is cool. Actually, we got one more comment from another friend of the show, Tema, yep. uh, just minutes ago, uh, about half an hour ago, and he said another way that you can think of the the light coming from from such a distance is that it's, it's old by that point, right? And it's actually, I'll find exactly what he said. 
He said, an alternative way of looking at things is that the starlight is old and let's face it, a little dingy after being around for a few million years. Maybe even a bit dirty, like bad, unkempt antique. Which is it's like the Tom Waits approach to the beauty of the universe. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. Can light become dirty and soiled? Yeah. I mean, I... I, I think the answer is no, but <laughs> it does. I mean, like we were saying briefly last time, you know, it, it does get warped. So it's not like it arrives completely unchanged right. from its origin. Right. So there are, are interesting things here. Interesting. And there's the whole background ra radiation. There's lots of cool space stuff we, we could talk about, but we won't. We won't. I mean, just before we uh, finish up the follow-up, there is one more follow-up nugget that we have. We Yeah, we got a tweet. This is going quite a way back now but unfortunately i saw this tweet just after we recorded the last two episodes back to back so we didn't get a chance to fit it in but uh this was from listener miguel who was listening to show number four which was the the travel special where we talked about greek and and germany uh, greece and germany and and kyoto and we also talked about how i enjoy the feeling of being outside but undercover in the rain because you're british because, well, that, that was one theory that was postulated. But Miguel <laughs> is Spanish. And he contacted us and said that he also enjoys that feeling. And in fact, while he was in Kyoto, he recorded some very nice video with what I assume is a fancy camera. And he's put that up on YouTube. So there'll be a link in the show notes. But I think it, it beautifully captures how Japan specifically is really nice for this thing of being able to be outside watching the rain fall down on this beautiful scenery around you. So it's a very nice video and we'll we'll stick it in. And, you know, maybe it's not a British thing. Maybe it's a Spanish thing because I was born in Spain as well. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the missing link. Well, the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. Uh, I don't know if that's relevant. That is that is what they say. And uh, <laughs> But you need some sort of cover for this to be relevant. That's so right. There's not much cover in the planes. Those, so. those, those Spaniards know what they're talking about when it comes to rain, don't they? Certainly they know their diction. Yes. <laughs> okay, so there's another big piece of news. Yep. Which is that as we record, you are not in Japan. I am not. This is true. Uh, you and I have actually done a fair amount of traveling in the past week or two between us to different places in the world. Um, we have. I am actually coming to you now from Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, we have been, over the past year, awaiting the arrival of our residency permits for the country of Sweden. And a few weeks ago, they finally came through. And um, I am now here by myself in Stockholm looking for an apartment. Uh, and when I've found that, uh, my family will come to join me. And thus begins our adventure in Sweden. Very exciting. Yes, it's been uh, 15 years that I was, a bit more than 15 years that I lived in Japan. And various um, work-related things, as well as a sort of, um, I guess, a emotionally just sort of seeking seeking a, a closure to the time that I had in Japan. Because, I, you know, I, I love Japan. Um, of course I do, after living there for 15 years. And um, it's amazing that I was first in Japan when I was like, what, 21? And um, to think how your environment and the country that you live in and the society and the friends that you have and the work that you do shapes you as a person. Right. To me, of course, Japan 
having been there for you know the better part of almost uh, half my life basically all of your adult life yeah basically um it's uh, always going to be imprinted on my uh, my character i guess um which is it's a wonderful thing to take from the country but uh, you know i was feeling um uh there were obviously work opportunities as well but i was also feeling a um and and family considerations too but i was feeling a desire to to move on and to uh start up a new chapter and basically mix things up a little bit and this is uh i pretty much got what i asked for because here i am from northern europe uh the uh, lovely country of sweden very exciting so now we have a, a podcast one of the main hooks of which is that we're two game developers in japan where neither of us is in japan and one of us is no longer making games <laughs> that's right good good times <laughs> that's right that's right yeah um so that's uh that's where i am at the moment i have uh, some interesting things to talk about uh with regard to how i got here but before we get into that uh let's just uh catch up on where you've been in the past week oh okay uh well as we mentioned in the last podcast i have been in england uh which i didn't mention this but i was actually there for two weddings wow yeah my friends very kindly got together and arranged their weddings within a week of each actually they didn't these are two <laughs> separate friends that i know from totally different contexts that i think have met each other once right. which was at my wedding uh, <laughs> And uh, so, but by complete coincidence, they had these two weddings next to each other, which I was very pleased because I think I would have, I would have liked to have gone back for both of these weddings, but I couldn't have made two trips back to England. So I would have had to drop one or the other had they been further apart. So I was very pleased that I was able to fit both of them in. Nice. Uh, and it was, it was very nice. It was a nice trip. So as a result of these two weddings from these two groups of friends that live quite far apart, it ended up being a, a bit of a tour of the, the whole of England because we started off uh, in Stratford, which is where I'm from. Mm. And I spent uh, a day, basically just one day uh, with my parents. And my wife and I went with my parents to Warwick Castle, which is one of the biggest sort of tourist attractions in the area. But in the three times we've been before, mm. Uh, my wife and I haven't actually been, so she's never seen Warwick Castle. And I don't think I've been there since I was a teenager. Right. So last time I went, I had been many times recently. We'd gone on school trips, and then whenever our cousins came over from Australia or South Africa or whatever, mm. we would take them to Warwick Castle. And so it was kind of a little bit old hat by the time that I left England. But now it's been something like 10 or 15 years probably since I've last been. And it was amazing. It's so, Warwick Castle is so good. <laughs> uh, so I, I definitely recommend it to anyone who's in, who's in Warwickshire. You're probably already going if you're a tourist and you're in Warwickshire, because apart from the Shakespeare stuff, it's the next big thing that you probably go to. But it is a castle that remains in pretty impressive condition, yep. considering it was originally founded i think in the 14th century right. and there has been a castle on that site ever since although it's been done up many times and i think the biggest the the most recent big sort of renovation to it happened in the in the 18th or 19th century whoever owned it at the time wanted to sort of do it up but when they did actually interestingly they purposefully made it look kind of medieval i see i think at at that time whenever it was in the in the 18th or 19th century 
whether it was fashion or whether it was just that family who owned this castle, who lived there, mm. they wanted to give it this medieval feel. So it's funny because we look at it now and think of it as being super old. But it is as if the people, if you imagine someone now might do up their castle to make it look a few hundred years old, and you would think that's a bit tacky. <laughs> right. They did that, but they did it 200 years ago, so it's passed through tacky and become cool again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But as well as that, they've got these huge grounds. They've got peacocks in the grounds, which are always nice to see. And they have a number of events that they put on, especially over the summer. So we saw the uh, Birds of Prey exhibition, where they have a real falconer who shows you all these different birds of prey and, and sends them flying around, and they fly really low. They, I think my dad was taking a video of one of them, and the wing actually clipped his hand holding the camera as it was really? swooping down above him. Wow. So they, they fly right over you. Uh, but it's, you know, they're very well trained, so they're not going to peck your eyes out or anything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they had a trebuchet as well, a real trebuchet, which, you know what a trebuchet is, right? That they used to, the huge war machines, that, like it's essentially a slingshot, right? But massive. Actually, I didn't know that. I, I only know the font. Oh, I see. oh, really? Oh, well. <laughs> a trebuchet is like a... Have you seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? A uh, long time ago. I don't remember it too well. I think that's what they used to fling cows over the wall in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Anyway, it's a huge slingshot. It's about three stories high, I think. Right. And the, the sort of wooden structure. And then from that uh, is, I don't know, a chain or, or something, some softer sort of material which hangs down and then you put your load in there and then you you pull it back which obviously it takes two men turning this wheel it's a lot of effort to pull it right back mm. and then you let go and fling it forward and it can shoot it can shoot its content at at something like 150 miles an hour and it can go 300 miles i think so it can go it's seriously powerful weapon right but they didn't I don't think they used to shoot it from 300 miles away. They used to shoot it from right up next to the castle and just fling rocks into the walls. It's <laughs> quite effective. <laughs> and also fling things over the walls as well. Right. So that was pretty impressive. The one thing we didn't get to see, which was unfortunate, because they also do this during the summer, and this, this sounds like a lie, but it's genuinely true. They have jousting. Wow. Like actual jousting where they have... Uh, I haven't seen it for years, so I can't quite remember, but I'm pretty sure they have actual men wearing actual plate armor on horses trying to knock each other off with poles that's uh yeah that's how would you do that and still be able to guarantee the safety of the participants well they're very well trained right and i'm sure they've signed a number of waivers yeah because <laughs> yeah like as far as sports go it's uh, it's pretty hard to imagine how you can get through a you know a jousting match and not be right. mortally injured it's not really it's not a sport when i say they have jousting it's not like anybody is allowed to sign up and join in no of course not like if they had a football tournament or something it's more it's it's a demo it's a demonstration so I'm sure they've decided ahead of time, for example, who is going to win. And so I don't think they're actually competing. I suspect I see. that the people who are going to fall off know they're going to fall off. I see. So that they so, sort of the one can pull his blow a bit and the other one can sort of jump off at the I last see. minute. So it's a, bit, it's a little bit like medieval pro wrestling. Uh, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and as we were walking up to the castle, we saw their truck. They have their, you know, the horse carriers very distinctive shape of, 
of truck and they had their mark on the side saying the such and such jousting crew or whatever mm. i guess they must go all around to castles all around the country and do these demonstrations but they were just setting up and i got all excited and was saying oh we might be able to see some jousting turned out we were going on thursday the jousting started the season started that saturday oh, no. and runs now and through august oh. so we just missed it so that was that was very unfortunate but it gives us another excuse to go uh, on a future occasion yeah Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, so that was fun. That was fantastic. And then from then we went up to Newcastle, spent a few days there for one wedding, went down to Cambridge, spent a few days with my sister there. And Cambridge is one of my absolute favorite cities. I love it. Yeah, Cambridge is great. We talked at one point, we were talking about potentially moving to Cambridge, not moving in together, but we were both talking about moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind that either, Danny, but yeah, no, that's... Uh... <laughs> I'm sure your wife would have a thing or two to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, Cambridge, uh, Cambridge is great. It's, uh, it, it, it's just great. I mean, what, what can you say about it? It's excellent food, great people, the beautiful city to look at. Um, you have obviously the university there and uh, there's so much heritage. Um, but, and the river. Yeah, of course, the river can. A ton, ton of bookshops yeah and uh quite a good music scene too i hear in cambridge i mean not yeah not on the good, scale and of... good comedy scene as well because basically all the famous british comedians come out of uh i think it's called footlights the cambridge university oh, okay. drama society that's like, a, a lot of the famous guys came that, out that's of where that. rowan atkinson came from there didn't he i think so yes he did yeah and i think stephen fry and hugh laurie and right i think french and saunders probably came from there as well but i'm not sure about wow. them Actually, did you know that? Did you know that Pink Floyd came from Cambridge? Oh, there's another one. Yeah, Ali G. You, do you know Ali G? Pink Floyd is not a comedian, Danny. I know that Pink Floyd is not a comedian. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I remembered somebody else that was slightly unexpected that uh, came from Cambridge. Um, anyway, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a great city. So, did you? Did you um, uh, I guess enjoyed. How much time were you in Cambridge for? Did you enjoy uh, some food? I was some... not. I did not have more than one full day in any place i don't oh, think okay. until the end right so i was in we arrived in stratford uh, in the evening then we had one full day then we left in the morning and spent a day traveling and then we had we actually had two full days in newcastle but one was tied up with a wedding right. so then we had one day of doing our own thing mm. and then the next day we spent the whole day going down to cambridge mm. after that one full day in cambridge and then the next day was going to stratford and then from then on we were we were there so oh, I see. it was a very sort of up and down all over the place kind of trip but the one full day was enough to go punting on the river yeah oh, nice. to go see the botanical gardens yeah and to go and see the chapel at king's college so we did all the tourist things right which is funny because i've been to cambridge many times before because i had a friend a friend of the show in fact who has commented in earlier episodes he currently lives in seattle but he used to live in cambridge and i used to visit him quite often but because I was going to visit him, we very rarely did any of the tourist things. Right. We'd just hang around at his house, or we might go out to a restaurant or a pub. Uh, but we didn't, you know, we didn't see all these things. So this was nice to get the chance to do all that. And I also went to the the market. They've got a market in the in Market Square basically every day. But some days it's a farmers market, and some days it's like a general market. And on this occasion, they had a, a bookstore with loads of old books. And uh, this is sort of maybe we'll talk about this more another time but my dumb hobby that i'm doing at the moment is studying ancient greek right so i kind of had a flick through i was looking through this bookstore and i was like there's there's no way they're going to have books in ancient greek i know these books look old but, <laughs> yeah. but they're not that old but i was looking through and they, and they had a few in latin so i was like oh, okay so i asked the the guy on the stool and he said oh hang on a second we've got the uh 
the little and Scott lexicon. I'll just look at I put it in the box, but I'll just dig it out for you. And and he he dug it out and it was the uh I think nineteen fifty publication of this uh lexicon, which is a, a dictionary. Right called Liddell and Scott, which is one of the most sort of commonly used dictionaries for ancient Greek. Uh, and the one that all the, the websites, when you look things up in the dictionary, they often, that's their source. Right. Uh, and, and he had a hard cover copy of that for five pounds. Wow. It's great. So I picked that up. Oh, you got it? Great. Yeah. So that was, so, you know, for that sort of thing, I think for somebody with uh, weird hobbies like mine, Cambridge is a great city to live in. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I have uh, great memories. I, I uh, went there with my wife uh, and my parents on a holiday. Um, we spent, because uh, actually I'm proud to say that uh, my, an- my ancestry on my father's side is from Cambridgeshire. And we, not from Cambridge, from Ely, which is a smaller town close by to Cambridge. Right, just outside, yeah. Yeah, we spent uh, several days in Cambridge. Uh, we stayed in a, in a little, um, tiny little sort of bed and breakfast. No, not really bed and breakfast, kind of a lodge place. Um, also in a small town called, uh, don't remember the name, but it's also, it's in between Cambridge and, uh, Ely and basically sort of drove into Cambridge each day to do stuff there. Just, just fantastic. Excellent food, excellent food. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, just a great, just a great vibe. So, so what else did you get up to? Any, any, uh, any other interesting observations or, th- or things that you did while you were there? Uh, yeah, so, well, I mean, that was about it for the tourism, and then the rest of it was just digging around in my attic for things that I wanted to uh, relieve my parents of and, and take back with me to the States. Right. But there were a couple of funny things that I noticed, which is uh, from my perspective of going back to England after quite a long time away, many years in Japan and nearly a year now in the U.S., and there was some funny because I I still think of myself as as pretty English, and not that uh, modified by the Japanese experience. I haven't uh, gone native, as it were. Right. Um, but there were some funny things I noticed that have just sort of I've internalized, and one of them was crossing the road, because when I first moved to Japan, I don't know how it is in Australia, but. Uh, when I first moved to Japan, I found it really funny that people would just stop and wait when the pedestrian light was red, even on these tiny little roads, because you're walking up Karasuma in Kyoto, and you've got all these tiny little side roads, and there's no cars for miles around, and the light's red, but it's obviously you could just go. And I found it really funny that they just stop and wait every time for the light to turn green, and then go. That must be a, a Kyoto thing because uh, in Osaka, people are famously, famously brazen, uh, famous, famously ignorant of, of traffic lights. <laughs> um, well, anyway, the, and obviously here in America, uh, most of the roads are like 12 lanes wide anyway. <laughs> so you're obviously not going to just skip across them. Uh, and, and jaywalking is, is illegal here. Who walks anyway? And, and nobody walks. So, but going back to England, after all this time, I found myself stopping at a crossing, pressing the button, waiting, and they're just watching all these people stream past me across, <laughs> across the road. Because they were like, well, obviously there's no cars. We're going to cross. And that, I've, I had forgotten how common that is and how I too would have just made that judgment and gone. But yeah, so that was, that was a thing that I've, I've definitely slightly adjusted to the to the Japanese and now the American way of doing things because 
I found it really and then I was like out in town with with my parents and and they're just going across the road and I'm like oh oh, oh okay I'm running to catch up like, <laughs> yeah. so yeah no, that was funny and the other the other thing that I had forgotten uh, this is another peculiar you know like enjoying being undercover in the rain but uh you know, you have games that you play when you're in the car, mm. and people have like, I spy with my little eye. Yeah, we we had to, in our family there was one called Animal Vegetable Mineral. Yeah, right. Or we call it Twenty Questions. I think okay, you're right. you're trying to narrow down, starting with the question, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? You're trying to narrow down what the thing is that somebody's thinking of, right? Right. Yeah. So there was a game. It's not to call it a game is a bit much, but there's a solitaire version of these car games right which i just used to play in my own head not with anyone else but just when i was bored sitting in the car and obviously having never driven uh, i was always being driven around by other people right my parents or my friends and british number plates are, are well suited to this spotting acronyms and file extensions on number plates <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't, I didn't consciously make this up as a game or anything. I did, it was never something I consciously tried to do. But the UK number plates uh, are composed of two sections. They have a letter and then, I think it's a letter and then three numbers, and then a space and then three letters, right? Right. So you'll have like G797FYB or something like that. Right. And those are obviously three letters is prime acronym and file extension material. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> and so just occasionally you, you pass a, a car with like JPG at the end. Right. Like, oh, it's a JPEG. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, this was a thing that I did without thinking. I didn't, I wasn't like going out of my way, like craning my le- neck looking for cars or anything. Right. But I would just relatively frequently, because there were a large number of acronyms and file extensions in the world, Relatively frequently, on most drives, there would at least be one or two cars that had something interesting for their last three letters. And I had completely forgotten that I had this habit until we arrived at the airport. This is the moment we arrived. We got off the plane, and my parents had very kindly come down to Heathrow to pick us up. And on the two-hour drive back to Stratford, I just kept on seeing all these file extensions (laughs) popping up everywhere. I was like, oh, yeah. I remember England's great. <laughs> <laughs> so did you did you catch any uh, any esoteric file extensions? Like, uh, let's see if I can think mm. of a few, like IFF or um, no, I didn't didn't spot an IFF. Actually, I'm not sure what an IFF is. What's an IFF? IFF is uh, interchange file format from the Commodore Amiga. Used to be. Oh yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have even known that one. I don't think. Yeah, it used to be used for. Uh, oh, gee, I'll have to. Oh, this is embarrassing. It used to be used for image files, I think bitmaps, and also um, right. I think uh, also sound samples could be IFF as well. I have to check up that. All right, but, interesting. Uh, so like a container format. Actually, speaking of the Amiga, that was one of the things that I found in my attic. There was a, an Amiga 1200 sitting in there. I almost took a photo of it Classic. For you. The 1200 is, is, <laughs> is my favorite of the family. But anyway, did you catch uh, any uh, – oh, which extensions did you see? Did you get a PDF or a – I think there was a PDF actually. Right. Yeah, <laughs> though I can't. I didn't note them down because, like I say, this was never really that serious a game. It's just a sort of a thing to spot idly as you're driving along, and sometimes there are extensions. Like I think there might have been a PDF, and uh, like JPEG is surprisingly common. Like the common extensions, right? 
by coincidence or maybe just because those are the ones that jump out at you the most. But they, you know, there are quite a few of them. But you'll also get, uh, you know, acronyms like you like you use in in tech speak. I don't think there was an LOL. Uh, <laughs> you get like you know IDK for I don't know and right. things like that. WTF um, and uh, right. Be I don't think I saw a WTF. That would be I would want to give that one a prize. I think that yeah. would be one. <laughs> I think um, we should definitely um, take a note down here at this point to uh, come back to the topic of uh, file formats and file extensions because it's, it is a fun topic to talk about. Um, well, it would be a fun topic for you and I to talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know how many other people would be interested, but uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, let's make a note to come back. That is a future topic. And if you're, if you're listening and you have uh, some, I don't know, favorite old defunct File uh, file extensions or file types that you miss, such as IFF. Uh, there are many, many others, of course. Then uh, let us know because yeah. uh, that'd be an interesting topic to have. You know, or if you're listening in the car and you spot any interesting file extensions amongst your fellow drivers, which will be easier if you're in the UK than in most countries, uh, tweet them at us. <laughs> Tell us, sneak a photo. <laughs> 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 nobody will mind send, send us your yeah no, nobody will. <laughs> don't worry about the privacy concerns we didn't spend two episodes talking about nothing else <laughs> uh yeah send, send us your neat file extensions that you see on the on the road fantastic so, don't take photos while you're driving no don't, don't do, do that. that just just stop <laughs> or if you see cars parked or just don't take a photo and tell, remember it for later but anyway yes file extensions cool <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, uh, coming back to my uh, trip over here uh, to Sweden, uh, through a number of complicated problems, I actually ended up riding to uh, Sweden on business class. Oh, very nice. Yes. Uh, on em- Which airline? So this was Emirates. Emirates. Oh, I hear. I, I, I imagine their business class must be even better. Yeah, so I had uh, from Kansai, Kansai in uh, Western Japan to... Dubai, I had business class. And then from Dubai to Stockholm, the flight was so full that they actually upgraded me to first class. So I had the complete luxury Emirates experience, including the Emirates Lounge in Dubai, which is is huge. Absolutely huge. Is it made of gold? There's a lot of gold there, and it's not actually real gold, but (laughs) it's very shiny, and uh, it is absolutely huge. Like It's kind of like the... uh, you know, I think there are scenes in the in the Matrix where they're standing with where the background goes all white, and then they're like, there's like the sort of endless. Oh, the oh, the one. Oh, you mean the one where all the guns come out? Oh, something. I, I remember. I haven't seen. They're that standing way. in that sort of white area with nothing in it, and then it's this uh, long Morpheus shelf. Sort of clicks his fingers or something, and these huge, long, infinite shelves yeah. of guns comes out, and they select what they're going. It's, it's basically like that. Like it just actually stretches on further than your eye can see. And this is just the business class lounge. Right. <laughs> it was amazing. So anyway, uh, I wanted to just um, recount the experience because it was actually quite interesting. And also, I know you'll have some interesting feedback because you've also ridden business class. And I think one of one topic that we did have, when was it? When we were, it might have been on one of our train rides together. We did actually talk a little bit about business class and the difference between business class and economy class. So right. starting off on that point, Yes, Danny, you're right. Business class is great. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's great. I mean, <laughs> I had ridden it once before, and I previously I I kind of found it a bit annoying because basically, yeah, you get a bigger seat and it is more comfortable, much more legroom. 
Uh, but I found it a little bit annoying because at that time, this was many, many years ago, and I, I think it might have been Qantas, they came out to serve the business class meals, which are served to you on individual plates, mm. on this tiny little tray table, even though I had this massive seat. So I just found it really annoying trying to juggle all these plates, and I just sort of wished I had it all on one single convenient compact tray, oh, right. <laughs> um, like in economy. And also the feeling then was basically that, you know, plane travel is basically uncomfortable. You know, there is only so much that you can do to make plane travel less uh, less uh, agonizing. Mm -hmm. But uh, Emirates, they do a very good job because it was very, very comfortable. Basically, business class, you have in Emirates, you have um, a very large seat that actually reclines into a full bed. Uh, so you can actually stretch right out. Right. But there's some small touches there that were really nice, like a little bit of privacy. You have a little screen that you can put up between you and the person next to you. Oh, no, like a curtain kind of. Uh, no, it was like, it's actually like a, a solid sort of partition that can. Oh, I see. Is, that's motorized that actually that can be lifted up in between, uh, raised up in between you and the seat next to you. Very nice. You also have uh, the seats. One, one small nice touch that I thought was when the seat reclines back to form a bed the head the head part of the seat actually goes back into the sort of cocoon shaped little capsule uh, that sits behind the seat when it's in its upright position oh i see so when you sort of when you when you have your head back inside that essentially not only does it cut the noise down but you really feel it feels nicely sort of encapsulated and you feel like it's a nice little space uh where you know you you uh, not only, yeah, the sound, it, it helps dampen the sound. And also, if other people around you have reading lights on or are watching movies, you don't get so much of that glare. And you have a nice big pillow and they actually come out with like a mattress that they can lay onto the, it's like a thin mattress that can be laid onto the to the seat for you. Oh, really? Wow, very fancy. This is still in business, right? Not first. Yeah, this is business class. Uh, and for the first time in my life, I actually slept. Uh -huh. So from Japan to Dubai is like about 10 hours and I slept about about four hours, which is for me is like unbelievable, but mm. it just was quite comfortable, you know, and uh, stretching right out like that uh, with your head inside this sort of little cocoon area uh, and a nice sort of uh, proper comfortable pillow, a little sort of tray next to you to put your glasses on. And uh, obviously you have a blanket on top of you and uh, yeah, it was just really comfortable. And um the food was excellent. Uh, Emirates food, generally, I've, uh, I fly Emirates. I used to fly. Well, I do fly Emirates fairly often. Right. Uh, but Emirates food in general is very good. But the business class food was, was very, very good. Oh, I can imagine. And, uh, yeah, as, as with my previous experience with business class, you have all the things brought out to you on, on individual plates. And uh, right. uh, it's just like eating in a restaurant, really. And... You get uh, noise-canceling headphones. Oh, they give you those as standard, do they? Yes. Um, Very nice. Which uh, I've never enjoyed noise-canceling headphones because I find that I can I can hear the the inverse signal. <laughs> right. Maybe I might be a bit sensitive because that's my you know that's my job, I guess. But that's your job, yeah. Um, so I usually can hear the inverse signal, and it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. And yeah, when you put the the noise cancelling headphones on on an airplane, again you can hear it. Right. Um, but it, it's better than it, it does. Definitely does dampen the sound of the engines, which makes uh, listening to uh, movie soundtracks uh, very good. I watched uh, the uh, new was it Rogue One Star Wars movie. Oh, very good. Not not that new anymore. But yeah. did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was uh, it was good. Uh, it started off a bit sort of. I, I didn't really like the music. I thought that you can't 
really have a Star Wars mu- music, uh, Star Wars movie without the classic music. Well, that's that's quite on purpose, though. Yeah. In the same way that it's not really a Star Wars, like it's not Star Wars something. It's da 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 a Star Wars story. Yeah. So I think they've made it a real effort to sort of separate those things. Yeah. Even despite that, like in, I, I realized that I knew that knew that background of it, but even despite that, that the actual um, the theme. Like the actual uh, music itself, right? Regardless of whether it was Star Wars or not Star Wars, I, I just didn't really go for it. I, but um, right. yeah, especially towards the end where it starts to tie into Episode Four um, for a you know a, a general low key Star Wars fan such as myself, that was uh, very enjoyable. And I also watched the new um, uh, Ghost in the Shell movie, the live action Hollywood version. Ah, oh, yes, I haven't seen that yet, but I have. Uh, read reviews. Yeah, it's what did you what did you think? It's not very good. Um, but <laughs> it, I mean, well, it, it's hard to say. I mean, to begin with, the music and the sound design is fantastic, and oh, okay, for me, uh, that was worth the price of admission alone. Both, yeah, both the music, the sound design was just just excellent, and uh, listening to that on the noise cancelling headphones was uh, was a very nice experience. The movie itself, of course. You know, we're all familiar with the the classic legendary uh, anime original, which of course comes from the uh, equally classic manga by uh, Shiro Masamune, uh, which is um, an an utterly mind popping uh, manga. He's he's a little bit like Tolkien, isn't he? He's like a a fantastic world creator, but a terrible storyteller. <laughs> but the move, the anime movie attempts to kind of. Um, attempts to smoothen out the kinks in his storyline and the complex. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because I haven't read the manga, Okay, but I have seen the movie, and I was going to say I thought the storytelling was quite good in the movie. Yeah, so the movie attempts, the anime movie attempts to smooth out uh, and to simplify some of the complicated concepts in the manga, and then this Hollywood version, the live-action version, does it even more. So the storyline is very simple. Uh, it still retains the um, those core interesting concepts from the original. So I guess as a sort of an introduction for people to the whole uh, the whole uh, world of Ghost in the Shell, it's good. Did you watch the uh, TV series of Ghost in the Shell, Standalone Complex? Yes, I did, of course. Because I, I gather that the, this live action film is sort of like a weird mashup of the storyline from the original movie with the storyline from one of the episodes of Standalone Complex. Yeah. That's but also trying to recreate a lot of the imagery from the original movie, yeah. but in sometimes in places that no longer make sense because these stories are not meshed together very well. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you hadn't seen either the series or the original anime movie and you hadn't read the manga, um, you would probably say that it's pretty good. Uh, this, unfortunately, I found that um, Scarlett Johansson's acting was a little bit stiff. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm not sure about that casting choice, but the, the, the rest of the actors were great. Um, it was great to see Beat Takeshi doing his usual thing in there, which is, you know, grumbling a lot in Japanese and shooting people at point blank range, <laughs> which is basically his thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, I, I, so I wouldn't say it's a great movie, but definitely, um, if you like science fiction and I do, and I'm always eager to see any science fiction it was, it's definitely, uh, interesting and, and definitely worth it for the sound design and the music alone. So, oh, cool. Yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't actually heard much about that angle of it. I think I'll put in the show notes, uh, the review that I saw, which is by a YouTube channel called nerd writer, who is 
I think he studied film and he he does not really reviews. He does like video essays about film and sometimes about things other than film. That sounds interesting. And in this particular episode, which was it came out only last week, I think, he talks about Ghost in the Shell and how it is attempting to be an homage to the original anime, but how it falls short in a couple of specific ways. And he compares the way that certain shots have been done in the anime with the film and draws the sort of similarities and the the differences and why the the anime feels more effective. Because I think just watching it, you you get a vague feeling that, oh, this is doing something similar, but it's not quite as good. But maybe you can't put your finger on why. Right. And I think he does quite a good job of explaining sort of specifically what it is that the anime is doing better. So I found that video, even though I haven't actually watched the movie, mm. uh, I wasn't too worried about spoilers. So I found that video quite interesting. So I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'm, that, I'd be interested to see that myself, actually. Yeah, so that was business class. And it's funny that, you know, when you uh, when you enter an, a smaller airplane, like in this case, it was a, a Boeing 777-300, you, you tend to have to go in from the front when you're in economy class and you, you, you have to walk through first class and business class in order to get to the the economy seats at the back, right? Oh, uh, right, in the smaller ones. Because in the bigger ones, you turn left for business and right for economy, right? Right, right. It's always this kind of sort of, you know, I, I'm sure that with the smaller planes, they do that on purpose so that you you see the the what you get if you pay that extra for, for business <laughs> class. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of, I yeah, I, I sort of feel bad about saying it, but it, it was really nice. And you, you sort of... I mean, you know, you know me. I mean, I'm a father of two, so my idea of luxury is, you know, two happy kids and some quiet time. That's <laughs> that's that's my idea of luxury, and so I'm not. I've never been really comfortable with with luxury. It always just feels a little bit sort of decadent somehow. And so when you're sort of strolling through business class on your way to economy, you're thinking, ah, oh, you know, these these people with their money and, you know, how comfortable <laughs> how comfortable how comfortable can plane travel become. You know, the, the, I think the answer in this day and age is it, it actually can be quite comfortable. Yeah, and <laughs> if you pay for it, I don't know that I will ever have the opportunity to ride business class again. But uh, if I do, I'll definitely be looking forward to it because it was very nice. Now, first class. So uh, I went to went Dubai. The lounge was fantastic, and uh, something something really great for traveling like a, a long haul. Uh, international flight is a shower in in the middle of it. Yes, yes. So good. That is so good. And it just like, um, so I'd slept like three or four hours on the plane in business class and I got off and I got to the business class lounge, this huge lounge. Again, fantastic food. Uh, a lot of the sort of local, uh, local traditional foods from the area as well as the, the standard fare, but just the quality was really great. And uh, was it like a buffet? Yeah, you just go and help yourself if you want. It. Yeah, yeah, you just just it's all you, you eat what you like or you can eat. And um, you know, like I said, just uh, uh, choices for these nice sofa seats with Wi-Fi and PowerPoints just as far as your eyes could see in any direction. It was it was very nice. And the shower. So you have a nice meal, you have a shower, and you just feel, you know, really yeah. fresh. And uh, yeah, that's how long was the changeover then? Uh, my changeover was uh, four hours. Four hours. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's quite a bit of time to be able to sort of just take it easy for yeah. a bit. So anyway, I was lining up for the um, for to uh, get into the business class, and the guy said, "Sorry, we have a full flight. You're going to be upgraded to first class." Sorry. Sorry about that. It's like <laughs> <laughs> that's unacceptable. I paid for business class. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, first class. So the difference between first class and business class in Emirates is actually, unfortunately, not that great. The I think the the best value for money and comfort compromise comes at business class and peaks there, right? Because you pay all you pay you would pay all that extra for first class, and what you get extra, basically, uh, in Emirates first class, you have actually like a cubicle to yourself right and the cubicle has a door so you can actually close the door so you create for yourself this entirely private little space for yourself right mind you the door is kind of like shoulder height if you're standing up so when the oh i see it doesn't go all the way to the no you basically um close yourself off from other passengers right but the flight attendant staff when they're walking by they just have to look down and they see right into your I suppose space. that is, yeah, that is important. So, but if you're lying down, then, you know, from head height, it feels, I imagine, like you're kind of shut off. But then the thing is that in business class, you have, like I said, that sort of cocoon space for your head anyway. Right. So if you're lying down, you more or less have that anyway. Right, I see. And the, the flight staff would frequently come by and, you know, they'd be bringing food or drinks or whatever. And so opening the door anyway. So it's kind of, I just ended up leaving it open. Right. So there was that. You have um, a really big screen, which is very nice. I actually watched Ghost in the Shell on that. Uh, and you have better quality noise-canceling headphones, which is nice. Uh, and you have like a little sort of uh, personal bar. You press a button and the drinks come out of the of this um, sort of concealed shelf. Oh, I see. So you don't need to call the, the steward or anything. You just... It's like having a mini bar, like a hotel mini bar in your cubicle. Exactly. The other big difference is that... Oh, well, one smaller difference is that there's no overhead locker. So you have so much leg room that you can basically just put all of your hand luggage basically at your feet. So there's, there's, you know, like about a meter between the end of your feet. And if you're lying down, there's like a large amount of space between the end of your feet and the end of the cubicle. So you can actually stow all of your hand luggage right there in front of you. Oh, I see. Okay. Which is actually really convenient. Um because uh, you don't have to get up to to reach up above you. Right, I see. And then the the large uh, the, the last fairly significant difference is that in first class, you order from a menu the same way that you do in business class. And the food is actually the same, I think. It tasted just as great as business class. But the big difference is that you order whenever you want to eat. Oh, I see. There's not like a set time. Right. They don't come through at mealtime like they do in business class or economy class. You basically, whenever you feel hungry, then you basically whip out the menu and you call them and you they bring for you whatever you ask for. I'm not sure. I think I might prefer the business class approach because I would just forget to eat. I, you know, because the times are so complicated anyway, right? You're, you're crossing time zones and you're never quite sure when is the right time to eat when you're on a flight. Exactly. And so I, I think I would find it a bit easier if I'm just being told, no, now you're going to eat. This is the best time. Exactly. And that is exactly how I felt. I actually didn't feel like eating. Right. Because uh, I'd had this huge, wonderful breakfast in the business class lounge in the airport. Right. Um, but I wanted to try it. Right. And, you know, I, I this, like I said, I may, in the future, I, maybe one day I might have the chance to ride in business class again, but I seriously doubt I'll ever have the chance to ride first class. So right. I, I wanted to try it and to enjoy the experience, uh, but I just didn't really feel that hungry. But I, I know that the other thing is that, you know, when the pressure changes in these sort of high altitude flights, the way that your stomach processes that and the way that the feeling of hunger is somewhat different right so sometimes you may not feel hungry but actually you need to eat and that is where 
the sort of time schedule of business and economy class where the meal comes at a certain time is sort of convenient because you may not actually feel hungry, but the fact that you have food given to you, you eat it anyway and that helps you. Right, yeah, yeah. I think, okay, so I, if I ever ride first class, I need to say, just serve me the food when the business class people, yeah. the business class peons get their food. <laughs> I'll join the peasants in business class. The plebeians. Yeah, you could actually, <laughs> you, you could actually do that and then they would, they would uh, be happy to oblige, I'm sure. Right. And so the, uh, the food was really good, but again, it's the same quality as the business class uh, and I just had to remember to order it. Uh, and other than that, uh, the seat, of course, is a little bit even more wide than uh, the um, business class seat, and it reclines like business class back into a full bed uh, with a cocoon for your head again, mm-hmm. uh, and a clo- like at the closable partition door. Um, and other than that, you know, I guess, like I said, you know, you the amount more that you would pay for first class, I didn't feel personally that there was you know an equivalent amount of quality that I was or comfort that I I was gaining from doing that. So, yeah, I think that uh, if you have the ability, if you have the uh, the means to afford a little bit of extra luxury, or you really, really are determined to to make your comfortable as your flight as comfortable as possible for whatever reason, uh, I would definitely recommend business class over first class. Right. Yeah. I think I've so I've flown business class a couple of times, but it's always been when other people are paying. Right. <laughs> And so I always come off those flights and I think that was just so good. I think it might be worth it. Mm. And I th- and and then I look into it and I think you know it actually is worth paying a little bit extra cuz economy is the just the difference between economy and business is so great that you know f- flying business does actually make a big difference and it might actually be worth it. But then the next time I have to fly anywhere I <laughs> look at the prices and it is like two or three times the price, right. and I do always end up buying economy. <laughs> right, right. And uh, but if if you ever get the opportunity, business, just grab it because it is it is great if you can. I think. Yeah, I think I would say that it's worth it if, for example, you're in a situation where you must arrive at your destination alert and not completely completely exhausted. That's true. Yeah, if you have an important meeting or right. or an interview or or something like that. Uh, then it it probably is worth yeah, it yeah, for, if if you can afford it. Yeah, I mean, I think if I was if I was traveling internationally, yeah, you know, as you said, for an interview, um, and I, I had to keep it to a really really tight schedule, where I'm basically landing and then doing the interview uh, after a few hours or something like that. Um, that would be the kind of situation where the extra you know thousand two thousand dollars or whatever it is, I don't know, maybe th- not two thousand, but maybe uh, you know the extra amount of money that you would pay for a business class seat. I would think now, I would think, after having experienced it firsthand, I would think that, uh, um, yes, it actually might even be worth it in that situation because you do sleep and, uh, you know, being able to stretch right out is um, very, very comfortable and you do arrive much less less exhausted than than it tends to be with economy class. Yeah, that's true. And said that, uh, this last trip, for, for me at least, was very good as far as jet lag is concerned. I didn't really sleep on... I was in economy and I slept maybe a little bit, but I, I also struggle with sleeping. I struggle with sleeping on a bus. Mm. Like, it's not just planes, but I can't sleep while sitting, really. So I, I kind of always struggle with that. Right. But despite not really sleeping very much and watching The Godfather... <laughs> <laughs> that might have had something to do with it. <laughs> I arrived 
And so we had on the way to England, it was an overnight flight. And we arrived, we left basically in the evening, seven in the evening and arrived, uh, I think about, I think at midday, about 12. Right. And so we just had the, the afternoon and having slept maybe maybe a couple of hours on the flight, if that. Uh, obviously, I was tired that afternoon, but pretty much slept through the night and and the next night and didn't really have any problems with jet lag. And on the way back as well, it was the opposite. It was a daytime flight. So we left early in the morning. Our flight was at 7, I think. No, our flight was at 9, which meant we had to be at the airport for like 6.30. Mm. So it was, it was quite an early sort of getting up time. But we, we headed to the airport and... Uh, again, I didn't sleep because this time it was a daytime flight. So I just didn't sleep at all. And we we came all the way back, arrived back at San Francisco at about seven, mm. came home and slept that night. And I have had no problems with jet lag at all in either direction, which is a first for me, I think. I don't like suffer terribly from jet lag, but you know, I usually get a little bit. Mm. And one possible explanation for this is that this time when I arrived in when we arrived in Stratford my parents gave me these uh, melatonin pills have you have you seen those melatonin tablets have you seen those before no I haven't They're, so they hadn't either until they flew to Germany recently and Germany's not that far but you know there's a little bit of jet lag and somebody over there introduced them to these now melatonin is the hormone that your body secretes you know when it gets dark to tell you that it's time to sleep is isn't is is this the same as a sleeping pill basically well i don't think so i'm not entirely sure like i think sleeping pills is probably a, a broad category of pills that work in a number of different ways but what this is is almost like a, a supplement like you know a vitamin supplement or something like that right it's not really it's it's not vitamins but it is it is giving you a hormone that your body would naturally produce anyway so it's not i see too weird you know mm. um <laughs> but you know with a with a circadian rhythm your body gets into a pattern of secreting this hormone when it gets towards evening right so you get tired and then you fall asleep when it gets dark and that's what gets messed up by jet lag and so the idea of these tablets is well let's your body's not yet going to be ready to sort of produce this hormone at this time of day so you can just take it and and that'll make you tired and then you'll sleep and then your body will fall into the new required rhythm more easily right and i don't know you know for sure i haven't really read any studies i don't know how effective these things are. i never actually heard of them until uh, my parents you know gave us some but when they went to germany uh, somebody introduced them to it. And my dad took it straight away because he always struggles with jet lag. And my mum said, no, I don't believe, I think it's nonsense. I'm not going to bother. So she didn't take them. And my dad did. And my dad just naturally settled into the new rhythm and had no jet lag problems. And my mum struggled on for three days before she decided to take one of these tablets. <laughs> wow. So wow. There's, there's no guarantee that the tablet, you know, it could be a placebo effect. It could be a sort of, she could have been suffering from an anti-placebo effect, like because she was conscious that, that he was taking them and she wasn't. Right. Uh, so, you know, this, this doesn't count as any sort of scientific test that they are effective. But, you know, even if they are a placebo, I'll take that placebo because I, 
I had no trouble at all going in either direction and I was able to fully enjoy the almost two weeks that I was in England. Mm. And I arrived back at, at five or seven in the evening on Monday, last Monday, and went into work Tuesday morning at the usual time and worked a full day without feeling too tired or having any problems. So That's great. Uh, thumbs up from me I, um, on melatonin. I, uh, I have a three-year-old child, so ev- basically every day is jet lag for me anyway. <laughs> so, so yeah, this time coming to uh, – basically what it means is, you know, I'm used to irregular sleep. So uh, coming to, Sto- to Stockholm this time, I didn't have any uh, serious problems with jet lag, but – which um which airline were you flying? So I was with United. But yeah, from here, I think United is the most convenient, especially if you want to go direct to either London or Kansai. Right. You pretty much need to fly United. I think if you you can get Hawaiian Airlines to Japan from here and change, obviously, in Hawaii. Right. Uh, but for direct flights, it's, it's United or bust. So we flew directly from uh, San Francisco to London. And then on the way back, we actually changed at Newark, New Jersey. Not uh, not a huge fan of United, actually, myself. <laughs> I think. Uh, Un- well, United have been. Uh, United weren't great to start with, and then with the recent, uh, y- you saw the controversy with them dragging a doctor off the flight yeah, and all that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. So they're not in anybody's good books at the moment. I don't think. Yeah, just the. Um, uh, there's only I think. Uh, any game developer who works in Japan and goes to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco knows about the legendary morning sandwich. The legendary morning sandwich. The funny thing, so, well, let's talk about the sandwich first, but that, that was something, actually, let's not. <laughs> that was something that I was looking forward to when we first moved here because I was coming with my wife and I had been to GDC a number of times and had this sandwich. And... The thing about this sandwich is the way they just plop it in front of you. It's not like no, 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 no. It's not that. That is that is one part of it. Like the presentation is 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 just <laughs> ludicrous at best. I mean, it's just basically it's kind of like having your gruel slopped out into a into a, <laughs> really a, a bowl in front of you. Except in this case, they just sort of flop out this this sort of uh, little alfoil wrapped uh, sort of morsel for you. And uh, this this sandwich is just legendary because basically it's microwaved to bits, so it's so hot that means that the cheese inside it is a cheese and ham sandwich. But the cheese, which is very very oily, is completely melted, and all that oil has been absorbed by the bread. So, what and the smell of it? Like after you've been on a ten hour flight, right? The last thing you want is this extremely strong smell of melted cheese, right? I mean, I can't think of, I can't think of anybody. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody, but I, I really, it, it's shocking. I mean, how? Who would think that that is what you would want to eat after trying to get to sleep for like eight hours on an overnight flight from Japan? Right. <laughs> and you're already feeling just slightly nauseous anyway, right. and then that gets plopped in front of you. And I, the first time, I thought I might actually throw up. <laughs> <laughs> that is the legendary United sandwich from... Uh, so I, I was looking forward to introducing my wife to this experience. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see what her reaction would be. And she's been on a number of flights to Europe and to Turkey, where we often fly Emirates or Turkish Airlines or, or airlines like that, which have very good food. Right. 
And this was her first United flight. Oh, really? But of course, we flew business class. And on business class, they don't give you that sandwich. Oh, right. <laughs> right. They give you a much nicer breakfast on business class. So I was almost, I, obviously, I much preferred this breakfast and I, I was happier to be receiving it. But I was almost disappointed I didn't get to see her reaction to this infamous sandwich being plopped in front of her. <laughs> and so this time when we went to England, this was our first United flight to England. Mm. And I had thought, well, now's my chance. Right. Now she will experience this sandwich. <laughs> right. And I will and that will be the the perfect introduction to to food right. while we're in England, because you know, you can only go up from there. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so I was sort of I thought this might happen, but this sandwich is, I guess, peculiar to the Kansai San Francisco flight to GDC, where you arrive in the morning in San Francisco because uh, when you're flying from San Francisco to London, they give you an English-style breakfast when you arrive. You get an omelette and a sausage wow. and like a tomato, which is exactly what you want in the morning <laughs> after a flight. And it was nice. It was good. So either they've they've realized how bad this sandwich is and they have sort of corrected it and made better breakfasts, or this is a thing for when you're landing in America and that's the American breakfast. Yeah. And when you're landing in England, you get a, a nicer breakfast. Uh, but either way, she, she still hasn't experienced this uh, this infamous cheese and ham sandwich. Well, my breakfast uh, in business class uh, from Japan to Dubai was muesli, full cream milk, some yogurt, some cut up fruit, and a croissant. Now that is a beautiful breakfast. There you go. Nice and light, and uh, the, the fruit was wonderful. Um, all very, very chilled, you know, grapefruit and uh, some apple and some grapes. And um, I think uh, there was a strawberry or two in there. Uh, yeah, that, that was my breakfast, which is just, just great. It's just what you want to eat. I think um, maybe it's a, I don't know, it's, it's funny to think that, well, there must be British people on this flight because we're going to London. So let's give them a British breakfast. So by... Well, I, th I think it is common to, to sort of skew the meals to whatever the closest place is. So when you're flying from Europe to Japan, for example, you'll often leave with a European-style Western meal. And say you'll, you'll leave with an English breakfast and arrive with, like, noodles and teriyaki chicken for, for your supper as you arrive right. because they, they seem to sort of fit the meals to whatever the closest station so that by by deduction then we can say that the the representative food for the united states of america is a sloppy oily sponge with a vague vague taste of ham and, and cheese right. <laughs> which has been microwaved to absolute death <laughs> uh, in a tiny sort of gold alfoil wrapped uh sort of package of of just cardiac arrest it is it is pretty vile but it is a sort of unifying thing for people traveling to GDC. It is funny how everyone comments on it. Like it, it is well known, <laughs> right? And it is there's a sort of camaraderie to That's it. That's right. That's right. It's it's like a it's kind of like a rites of passage to GDC. Right. You know, right. Can you handle the sandwich? <laughs> yes. 